The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Dharma, incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it. We can listen to it. We can know and embrace it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Good evening. Good evening. How about we start where we're going and where we're going to end up tonight? You have no choice. Fill up the seats up front first. <laughs> Come over here from the side. Let's get personal. I intend to get personal. I'm late, I'm late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye. I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. I wake clear and rested, light, light flooding my room. The day seems endless and free. But making coffee, I notice three bills I haven't paid. And after showering, I notice I need a haircut. And since I'll be out that way, I think I might as well pick up my shirts but I so want to spend time in the sun, so I think, well, after these errands, I'll go to the park, and then I deliberate which park will be just right and decide on one 40 minutes away. Finally, wanting to make sure there is some fun in all of this, I call a, a friend and plan to meet her at a movie at six. Now I have to hurry along to make sure I can get everywhere on time. But thankfully, while gasping, gassing up, I hear a small bird and lift my head just as a cloud opens and the light floods my mind and I drop all my plans like change on the ground. I laugh at myself. I can so easily become a slave to all of these choices I create. Not one of these things is necessary today. I drop everything and follow the bird. So tonight is about freedom. And it is about freedom from the most unlikely, at least for most people, slave master in our life. And that is a life that is grounded in, directed by, administered by, our idea of choice, our idea of living a life with immeasurable choices. And we're going to take a look at the fact that when we talk about having a choice, the truth of the matter is choices have us. 
very simple example that I've been using for the past week talking to a lot of people about this is that Friday evening where you have been on the phone already with a group of friends deciding where to go to dinner. You know what that's like. Any more than two people in a conversation about where to go to dinner usually takes a whole day. You see. Not only do we decide where we have to go, we decide what kind of food we have to eat, we decide which place we want to go, which restaurant, which is the better paying, which is the less. And by the time we get to the restaurant, if you are Italian, you understand when I say, you got agita, and the food doesn't taste good anyway. So we're going to take a look at how a life filled with so many choices can literally enslave us limit us and prevent us from living life fully, but more accurately, living life at all. In the story written by Mark Nepo that I just shared with you, he gives a perfect example of most people's day. Running, 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 going, 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 coming, coming, coming. A day filled with a schedule of so many things to do. And in the end, he hears the bird He's moved by the light of the cloud and realizes his life is filled with so many unnecessary things. Drop the unnecessary, as the tea master says, and you can enjoy a perfect bowl of tea. In his case, drop the unnecessary, and he realized that the only thing that mattered, and you need to know that he was a very seriously ill cancer pa patient at the time he wrote these, this book, uh, you realize that the only thing that matters is here and now, the smell of the roses, the beauty of the sky, and the day is perfect just as it is. For most of us, choices, again, have us. They manage us. If you've ever been shopping in a supermarket and you see the number of choices there, unless you're very clear about a particular product that you've used and you've gone in for, in fact, over the years in my own life in relationship with other people who did most of the shopping at the monastery, uh, I made it clear that I would never go with them, and they made it clear that they would never go with me because I shop this way. I know what I want, I walk in, I get it, I pay for it, I leave. If I have to do anything else, I don't go to the mall and I don't go to the supermarket. Choices are, in fact, a means by which we become distracted and deluded about what really matters. Now, before I go any further, I want to make a clear distinction between what we are talking about, this matter of choices, and variety. I am certainly not talking about, you know, dismantling variety in our life. I enjoy variety as much as the next person. What I am talking about is how we approach that and how we live with the variety that life offers us every day. Variety is all around us. The shapes of the trees, the color of the sky, the heat of the sun, and so forth. So variety is not what we are talking about. What we are talking about tonight is how we choose. And how we choose actually chooses for us. We like to think that we are making choices in life. We like to think we are making free choices in life. But in reality, when you look at the power of choosing and how it has become, again, a means 
by which we are managed every day, uh, you find that we are not free and most of our choices are a function of something else. The truth is that we don't have choices, they have us. When you take a look at the choices and again the conversation that goes on between most people about where to go to a restaurant, you find that someone, at least one person, will eventually be offended by the end of the conversation because obviously their choice is the best one. Their choice is the right one. And when you think about that, when you think about how the choice of where to go to a restaurant can literally divide people even in a friendship, that's kind of stupid when you think about it. Until a person can say deeply and honestly, I am what I am today because of the choices I made yesterday, that person cannot say, I choose otherwise. Until we own the fact that our life as we know it today, the results of our years of living, the circumstances and situations we meet repeatedly each day, is really a function of the choices we've made in the past. The Buddha once said, if you want to know why you are where you are right here, right now, look at the choices you've made in the past. And he also said, if you want to know where you're going to be in the days ahead and in the future, look at the choices you are making now. And when he spoke about choices, he spoke about, again, the difference between living a life by what I call a principle of identity, as opposed to living a life, again, managed and driven by a central, sensual reaction to variety. And that's what we often refer to as choices. For most of us, our choices are nothing more than a sensual reaction to the variety that is available to us. And it's not that that isn't, that there's something wrong with that or something bad about that. I certainly respond sensually to a lot of things in the course of the day. But when it comes to making decisions, and it is the decisions in life that really matter, in the end, it's not the choices we have, it's the decision we make that has the power of transforming, changing, and opening for many possibilities. So I want to make sure you heard that. We value choices more than they should be valued. It is not the choices I have in my life each and every day presented to me as different opportunities that make a difference in my life. In the end, it's the decision I make about my life, I make about the direction, I make about the action, I make about my behavior in particular that makes the difference. And so we need to move from a choice-oriented way of living to a clear decision or decisive way of living. And most of us, when we are honest with ourselves at least, will say, my life isn't really that decisive. I feel pulled this way or that way. Most of the time I don't know what to decide. And most of the time I need to, you know, uh, refer to someone else's ideas, someone else's opinions before I can make a decision. And when you take a look at that process, you find that really the decision is made for you from the other party or the other source and so forth. This word decision, again, has in it the word decisive. To be decisive 
is to live with clarity, to live with purpose on purpose, and most importantly of all, to live with integrity. The principle of identity, a phrase that I coined many years ago in an effort to explain how I try to live my life each and every day, has to do with living a life with integrity. And by integrity, we mean the exact translation of Webster Buddha's definition when he says integrity is a strict adherence to a particular way of being. To live a life with integrity also is to live a life true to yourself. It has to do with resourcing a different mechanism in our consciousness for making decisions. Sometimes the mechanism is considered intuitive. But the problem with talking about intuition with most people is that after a life of being driven sensually this way and that way, making this choice and that choice, and having choices manage our life, it is often very difficult for the individual to know the difference between an intuitive response and this sensual response to variety, if you will. And that's where, again, a spiritual life designed like Zen to kind of like, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff is necessary. A life where we are literally in our practice or in our training, stripping away all the unnecessary stuff, arriving at the very surprisingly, at, in the end at least, reality of an entirely, completely, entirely different person than we thought we are and an entirely different world than we have perceived so far. Change is what happens when we have no choices left. Change is what happens when we have no choices left. Most of us who work hard every day to make the kinds of changes we want in our emotional, psychological, and spiritual work that we do on a daily basis, in our life in general, find that those changes not coming as we would like them to, when you get serious and honest about it, it has to do with the fact that you have not yet moved, when you have not yet come to a place where you have no choices left. You know, when you have no choices left. Janis Joplin said, freedom's just another word for nothing left, for no choices left. That's when the real freedom begins with us. There is an ancient Buddhist saying, the Bodhisattva, which is the icon of the most enlightened being, the being that reincarnates life after lifetime rather than entering nirvana to help others liberate themselves. The Bodhisattva knows that even if the sun were to rise in the west, he or she knows only one way. Even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva knows only one way. This is what I, again, coin or have identified as the principle of identity. And we're going to take a look at that as opposed to, again, our life where we value choices so much that we've lost ourselves in that value. We've actually diminished our own value for the value of the choices. Decisions are not hard to make when you know 
who you are. Who you are is not a choice. It is your true nature. When you know your true nature, all choices drop away. Then you are free. So when you find your life decisive, it is usually a character of an individual who has finally realized that what works for themselves is themselves. That is to say, in all of Zen training, the object is to realize, to make real, our true nature, who we truly are. And who we truly are is not a choice. Similar to the argument found in sexuality, one's sexuality is not a choice. We are born with our sexuality, for example. Who we truly are is not a choice either. We are born, you know, like Popeye said, I am what I am, you say. We are what we are. And most suffering in life is a function of kind of designing our life to be something than other we are, to be someone other than who we are, to, you know, be, again, listening to all of the opinions and influences of media and everything else, filling our consciousness with all the variety possible, asking us to make a choice there, when the only choice we should ever be making is truth at all times, is truth at all times. And the only thing that is true at all times is who you are. So I wrote these words and I want to read them again to you. Decisions are not hard to make when you know who you are. When you're coming from what I call the principle of identity, decisions are never difficult. When you are coming from who you truly are and acting with integrity, acting with a strict adherence to that way of being, decisions are like that, you see. Decisions are like that. In the last week, I was reflecting on what was for me about seven years ago, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was about seven years ago when this event happened, one of the most profound impact experiences in my life. And I wrote about this in my blog. The title of the blog was When Horses Cry. And it was about the tragedy that happened in Paradise, Pennsylvania, if you remember, when a gunman entered a single-room schoolhouse and murdered nine little Amish children, and then murdered himself. The most profound part of that story for me, and I believe for many other people, because for the next several months I did a lot of counseling to people asking the same question. The most profound part of that story had to do that when that event happened, the parents and the community of that, uh, that Amish community and the parents who lost their children in that schoolhouse within less than 24 hours made their way to the gunman's home to comfort his wife and his children. They had forgiven them. They had forgiven them. When the teacher of that community was asked, how was that possible? He replied, we had no choice. It is Christ's mandate. We had no choice. It is Christ's mandate. Christian or Jewish or Buddhist, 
the message of that response has to do with, again, knowing who you are. For them, their identification included an identity with the teachings of Jesus, the particular teaching of forgiveness. So their decision to go was a function, again, of knowing who they are and acting with integrity, even though it had to be, I can only imagine, the most difficult thing for any parent to do. I don't know if I could do it if, God forbid, something happened to my daughter. Does it mean that they were able to heal a lot easier? Not at all. Does it mean that they got some kind of you know, reward for what they did? Not at all. Again, being a parent, I know that if, God forbid, something happened to my daughter in the way that my younger brother, my baby brother, died at a young age and I remember my own parents, I can't imagine anything making that process easier, making that process less difficult. So what I'm saying is, in, when you live from the principle of identity, once again, there is no choice. That is to say, there is no expectation of, if I do this, I will get that. It's just doing it. Like the teacher said, we had no choice. It is Christ's mandate, you see. We have no choice. Even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva knows only one way. The message in that ancient Buddhist, ancient Zen saying says to us, even when catastrophic events happen in our lives, the Bodhisattva continues to act true to the principle of identity. This is true freedom. This is what we mean by being free. And most of us don't even feel the freedom to do what we need to do to help ourselves. Think about, in the course of the day, how many excuses we make about doing things like meditation, going to the gym, eating the right foods. And when we take a look at our excuses, which is another name for choices, it is the fact that we live out of a choice-driven consciousness rather than, again, a consciousness based on the principle of identity, being true to oneself. Choices only give you whiplash. Choices only give you whiplash. A life driven by choices only results in whiplash. You know, looking here, looking there, should I do this, should I do that? You know what happens in whiplash. The head is knocked all over the place. Decisions become easier to make when you begin to live with integrity more than trying to please others. So, something that is very dominant in most people's life the behavior of always trying to please others, always trying to make life easier for others, and ending up holding, if you will, the bag, is another form of choices, is, is, an, is another choice we make in life, you'll see. When we take a look at such spiritual icons as Moses and Jesus, the Buddha, uh, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Gandhi, all of these people, when we take a look at their lives, not once did they concern themselves with pleasing others. 
I mean, one of the one of the most powerful stories in my own life had to do with when people ask me, how did a young Catholic boy end up a Buddhist? I say to them, when I read the story about the Buddha's first teachings, I knew I had to get to know this guy. And the first time the Buddha shows up as a spiritual teacher, he gives this speech in a place called Deer Park, where they had built a platform for him because a thousand people had come to hear him speak. And I can only visualize this, and I want to invite you to do it too. Here he is for the first time, people coming, who is this cat? Is he worth listening to? Should we listen to him today? And so forth. And he, you know, gets up on the uh, platform, takes his seat, sits there. You know, I imagine the mic. You know, he says, this is working. And out of his mouth comes his first words. Life is suffering. I don't know about you, but I'm sure that a lot of those people who were sweating in the day heat waiting there for hours for this guy to get to the platform and hearing that for the first time must have considered what I'm saying. So I often say that I believe that what he really said, life is suffering, get over it, you're saying. He did not have a choice but to tell the truth. And the first noble truth, as it is referred to by Buddhists, is life involves difficulty, life involves suffering. So as the general once said to his lieutenant, I don't care if you go left or you go right. Just make a decision, I'm saying. I don't care if you go left or go right. Just make a decision. Because in the end, making a decision is what makes the difference, you see. I don't care if you choose right. I don't care if you choose wrong. Just make a decision. It is indecisiveness that not only causes suffering for the individual, but for the world around them. No one is willing to listen to anyone who cannot make a decision. At least I'm not. At least I'm not. Human beings are the only species in the universe that believe they have a choice. The wind doesn't think it, neither the sun, the moon, the stars, or the seasons. Human beings are the only species in the universe that believe they have a choice. The wind doesn't. It continues to follow its same path every day. The sun doesn't. It always rises in the east. The moon doesn't. The seasons don't. The planets don't. Even the animals in the forest don't. They go the same pattern and the same route every day. And they live much more abundantly, and they don't save for the future, and they don't invest in the stock market. And I don't know about you, but I often talk about sitting in the parking lot of an Acme uh, shopping center one day, watching those little birds that are always in the parking lot, just chip, chip, chipping away, eating, eating, eating. And I looked one day, what are they eating? They tend to find it all the time. Like Jesus said when he told his students, Behold, the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. They neither toil nor reap, and yet they always got food. They always got what they need. A life free of being directed or managed by our choices is a life that produces clarity for the individual. It is our choices that blind us from seeing abundance. 
It is our choices that blind us from seeing wonder. It is the different choices we make every day, not the decisions, the choices, such as the choice to think about the day this way, and then tomorrow to think about it that way. That's what we're talking about tonight. Even if the sun were to rise in the west, the Bodhisattva would still see the wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles that the Buddha spoke about on the day of his own awakening. The truly spiritual person can see the kingdom of God at hand. And Moses knew that one man could oppose and take down the entire Egyptian empire. Gandhi knew that the English would leave India at the, as a result of his efforts. A little, crumply, wrinkly, bent-over little man conquered an empire, the most powerful empire of its time. How did he do that? He had no choice. That's how he did it. And that's how he acted and responded to his life's issues. In the end, it is not the choices you think you have that make a difference. It's the decision, it's the decisiveness in your life that makes the, it makes the difference. Let me make it cooler again. Any questions? Well, Roshi, you say the most important thing is to be decisive. But what if the what if the decision you make leads to suffering in others? Let's say your decisiveness is that you choose to do genocide on certain people, or you choose to smoke and hurt others, or you choose to um, beat your wife or eat inappropriately. That leads to suffering. Whereas, had you made other choices, some would have said you've chosen the right thing, which would not cause other suffering. The saying goes, even if the sun were to rise in the west, the bodhisattva knows one way. It doesn't say, even if the sun were to rise in the, rest, the west, the murderer, the rapist, knows one way. It doesn't say that. So what I'm saying there is that a truly decisive person who is functioning from a realization and awareness of who they truly are is also functioning from a realization and awareness as to who everyone else is. Therefore, they have no choice but not to harm others. They have no choice but not to harm others. An example that I often use recently, at least in the last four years, has to do with parenting my daughter. And this, you know, anybody who knows me and knows my relationship with her, I'm crazy in love with this kid, mad about her. She's the light of my life, she's the center of my world, and so forth. And there are times in the course of every day she is with me where I want to strangle her, okay? Where she's ornery as hell, just like my gran her grandfather, my father, says, I was the same way when I was that age, okay? So in those moments when, again, I feel like harming her by lifting her up and strangling her, Obviously, I don't choose that. That thought comes and goes. That is coming from a place of knowing who I am, and obviously what comes with that is knowing who she is, and so forth. So again, as I said earlier, it's not the choices that make the difference in the individual or the individual's life. It's the decision in the end. A person 
who can easily harm his wife or anyone else is not a decisive person, okay? He is driven, for example, we know that rape has nothing to do with sex. It has to do with the anger, the unresolved anger and hatred the individual has for himself and taking it out on a woman or other persons, if you will. So again, you need to step back and see the whole scope of this. A decisive person is a person who has realized for themselves who they are. And from the Buddhist point of view, when I know who I am, I know who you are. When I know who I am, I will not do the things that harm me, and in turn will not do things that harm you. Because I know who I am, and I know who you are. Most people that do harm to others do harm to others because they are driven by fear. They are driven by the delusion of greed, which is translated, for example, in the matter of genocide, the, driven by the need for power and control and so forth. The Bodhisattva is driven by two things, love and kindness, and loving kindness and compassion. The decisive person is driven by that also. In the end, how I decide to handle my daughter's temper tantrums is driven by my love I have for her. It's not driven by me wanting her to listen to me. Me wanting her to listen to me is power, okay? And that's not what I'm interested in. Me wanting her to listen to me just seems to make life work better when she knows I'm right. <laughs> okay. See, we need we need to see again uh, how you know a life filled with you know again choice oriented deciding. And again, like I said, I'm not talking about variety. I uh, I love variety. You know, I love all kinds of different foods. I love all different types of movies. Sometimes I like chocolate, sometimes I like vanilla. I like that. What we are talking about is the difference between choices having you and you being decisive in your life. Being a true bodhisattva who even if your life were to fall apart, even if a man were to walk into your child's schoolhouse tomorrow and murder them, you would act accordingly to whoever's mandate you identify with, you see. You know, I cannot tell you, you know, I often say to people who ask me a similar question when they say, well, what about if someone hurt your daughter? And I would say to them, don't, don't misunderstand me. My daughter and I, which is most of the time, are the only ones living at the monastery in the course of the night. If someone were to come into that monastery and not identify themselves, all bets would be off. You see, don't misunderstand me about that. You see, so again, to live decisively is to live from that place of knowing who you are, knowing what really matters, what really is important, and then making choices from that place, from that place. Most of the time we are making choices from a very sensual experience. You see, it's kind of like, you know, something that most people battle with, I do too, every day of their lives, and that is eating the right food. And it's real clear to me that when I am in the company of Oreo cookies, I have to be really decisive, you see. And it's real clear to me that if I eat one, I can't just eat one. 
you see. And it's real clear to me that I'm not going to live to see my daughter be married and go off to college or whatever else she decides to do if I don't take care of myself now and now and now and now. It's that which is part of my identity, my daughter is part of my identity, that I make the choice not to buy Oreo cookies, or at least not to buy them without somebody else managing what I get out of the pack, <laughs> See, like that, because I love Oreo, I'm addicted to them, okay? I love chocolate just as much as the next person, and so forth, you see? But again, the decision to buy that tomorrow when I go shopping or not is based on how long I want to live, being one who had two heart attacks and COPD and all of that, and who has to keep his weight down, you know, and as long as I do that, I feel strong and alive and vibrant and able to keep up with a four-year-old. That's what we mean by being decisive. And that decisiveness must be strict, and that comes to the second part. When we have lived a life, and I have too, whereby we have you know, made choices from a very sensual experience rather than a decisive place or core, uh, training is necessary. Training ourselves to act with strict adherence is necessary. It's very much like, and I have found this for myself since my uh, heart attack, since my heart attack, I renewed, like you do on New Year's Day, my commitment you know, to eating right, exercising, getting the rest, living well, and so forth. And I must say, I've succeeded at that so far. And so you need to know that you know, I have this strict schedule of three days a week, I go to the gym and work out. You need to know that when any, I, any, uh, any one of those days show up for me, uh, sensually, I am struggling, okay? Especially when my daughter was with me the day before, you see. I'm wiped out, wiped out, okay, tired. And so the idea of the following morning, which is what I usually do when she goes back to her mother and I'm all alone, I say, okay, tomorrow morning I'm going to the gym after meditation. You need to know the same struggle everybody has goes on in me. It's kind of like I talk about this, you know, over the years I've talked about the fact that, you know, we've been at this address in Shimong for 13 years, and the building is 3,600 square feet. And the Zendo is at the exact farthest opposite end to my bedroom, which is at the other farthest opposite end, if you will. And we've had a practice, and we continue to, to in the winter time, rather than burn the heat and turn it up, we sleep under three blankets. So that when the four o'clock alarm goes off to get up for meditation any given morning, and I pull the blanket from over top, the first thing I do is pull it back, I see. And then my mind does the same thing it does for everybody else. Stay in bed, I see. And the problem is, and this is one of the bitter parts of the bittersweet life of a Roshi, is that my mind even goes as far to say, you're already enlightened, you don't need to go meditate, stay in bed, let's see. The other monks aren't even gonna to dare to mention that you weren't at meditation. Plays this whole game with me, Say, you know, stay in bed, I'm pushing the snooze button a few more minutes. But, eventually I get out of bed. And it's the decision to get out of bed 
that gets me all the way down the cold hallway into the zendo and you need to know that I'm the guy that starts the fire for the morning uh, sitting. So when I go into that ice box zendo at 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, I still got to start a fire to warm it up, you see. So it's usually like jumping around, getting the firewood, getting it started and so forth and everything else. And you need to know the conversation continues. Go back to bed. You know, probably no one's even going to come. And most of the time, until recently, I, mean, I have three faithful people that come all the time now. But in the past, there were mornings, many mornings, that I was the only one in the Zendo. So the conversation I tell people goes on, on, and on, and on, until I finally take my cushion and start to meditate. And then all of that choosing drops away. It is the decision, making a decision, that empowers us and brings about the changes we want in our life. And making the decisions, again, can't be just as, as, as my brother over there asked, can't be just, you know, uh, making any decision. It is decisions, real decisions, people who know how to make decisions and make decisions come from a place of real decisiveness, a place of integrity, a place of awareness of themselves and the consequences of their decisions. And I would also add, I don't want to mislead anyone. Sometimes, yes, my decisions do hurt others. Because like Lincoln said, you can please some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you're not going to get everybody's uh, pleasure out of your decision. And that's another experience of being an abbot of a monastery now for 38 years. So that's why I made a choice. I made a decision years ago when we were formulating the Zen Society how the government would run in the Zen Society. And we, like any other 501c3, have a board of trustees and I have Zendo officers, and the rule has always been the same, and that is they vote and I decide. That's how it runs. So as long as I'm responsible for what happens there in the end, I decide. That way I will never do anything that harms me you know, or anyone else. So decisions sometimes will involve disappointing, hurting other people's feelings, but as long as I'm not hurting their life source, which I would never think of doing, uh, you don't worry about hurting other people's feelings. People's feelings are going to get hurt. Like when my daughter has a temper tantrum, and because I tell her I'm not going to give her an Oreo cookie, say, and she has a temper tantrum, and she eventually says, Oh my God, you're so mean. <laughs> I regularly say to her, trust me, Katie, between now and your 21st birthday, you will say that at least 100 times. I say, no cookie. <laughs> like that. So the girl that I love the most in my life these days doesn't like me all the time. What are you going to do? So you need not to be concerned about that. And that's part of moving from a place where, again, choices run us to a place of decisiveness, a place of being really clear. And again, that clarity comes out of the work necessary in first realizing who you truly are, and then out of that place, starting to uh, you know, build a life that is an expression of that identity. You know, it's like I tell people, the robes don't make me a monk. 
the robes are an expression of my monasticism, per se. The robes don't make me a monk. The robes are an expression of my monasticism. And my choice to be an ordained monk, the ordination did not make me a monk. The ordination was an expression of my life as a monk, and so forth. That's the difference. When your life choices become an expression of who you are, we call that decisiveness. We call that living from a place of making decisions rather than having choices to choose. Any questions? So the first step towards the transformation has to do with what I call declaration. A declaration, again, when we think of the word declaration itself, we need to, at least what comes up for me immediately as I've used it over the years of teaching this, has to do with 1776. It has to do with the most popular, at least the most well-known declaration that people think of when we talk about making a declaration, the Declaration of Independence. And being a historical buff as I am, I've done a great deal of reading about the guys who made that declaration. And the declaration itself speaks about what we are talking about tonight, especially when you get to the end of it, where these men who absolutely, first of all, you need to know that history has taught us, whether you've learned it or not, that never before that day was such a declaration ever made on the planet Earth. Never before that day. The very idea of people having rights did not exist in the civilized world. Kings had rights. Lords had rights. Property owners had rights. But the individual people did not. The very thought of that even happening you know, uh, didn't exist in the human consciousness anywhere on the planet. That is why it was such an a objection by the King of England and, and a nation that went at war with us to prevent it. The very thought of that, because they knew that that would create a universal consciousness shift, which indeed it did. For the first time in the history of civilization, civilization someone said, we declare that the individual person has rights, and so forth. And when these guys made that declaration uh, on that particular day, you need to know that the British was only, were only 50 miles down the road heading in their direction to kill them. And they knew that also. And in the course that followed after that declaration, and they wrote that at the end of the Declaration of Independence, they lost their properties, they lost their wealth, and some of them even lost their lives from declaring that, okay? And you need to realize that they had no idea that it was going to work. They had no proof that it was going to work. In fact, when you, you know, study about Washington, who was given the task of leading the army to make it happen, I mean, most of the time, the Congress wouldn't even give him the money to raise an army and so forth. And he had to use his own money to make that happen. So they had no proof or evidence of the future. It was completely uncertain whether or not they were really going to be, you know, uh, able to declare themselves independent of Great Britain. Great Britain 
had them on their top 10 wanted lists, you see, shoot, you know, you know, dead or alive, stamped and so forth, and they had no evidence at all that in the end we would be the United States of America. But what they did do decisively was stand on the streets of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and say, this is it. We declare ourselves free from Great Britain, from the king. We declare that, period. And then they went for hiding, you know, then they went to war, and so forth. So a declaration is like that. There's no evidence, there's no proof, there's certainly no expectation of things becoming easy or the task being easy. There's just the declaration. And the declaration is, again, in our topic tonight, is to move from being managed by choices in my life to a place where I become decisive, living my life as a function of identifying with who I truly am. And part of who I truly am, obviously, as I touched upon a few moments ago, has to do with being clear about what really matters to me. And the declaration might look something or sound something like this. The moment I become really clear about what matters to me, the declaration might say, at no time in the future from here on will I make a decision that in any way prevents me from living what really matters to me. See, what really matters in life. Now what really matters to me, I've touched upon, for example, is my four-year-old daughter, my life as a monk, my students, my community. These are the things that really matter to me, okay? And, they re and, and the stuff that, it, that really matters to us also is connected to our identity. And what I mean by that is, you know, one might say, well, what if making money is what really matters? Making money is no, no problem with making money. As long as when you're making money, you're not denying others freedom to live their lives. Or, for example, when making money prevents you from being with your children or your spouse, prevents you from taking care of your body, resting, and so forth. That's very different, okay? So what I'm saying here is that when we take a look at the truly decisive person, again, when we take a look at those historical characters that inspire us by their decisiveness, if you will, there is a real spiritual image, a real spiritual paradigm in their decisiveness. And by spiritual, I mean that they have realized that birth and death, as the Zen uh, Durrani goes, birth and death is the supreme matter. The fact that life is impermanent, my life, the life of my daughter, the life of my students, the life of the Zen society, the fact that life is impermanent has a big part to do with how I decide to spend my day and to spend my time with the people I love and to be here tonight with you, you see. I mean, a tornado hit us on Tuesday at the monastery, if you don't know, I'll tell you more about that later, and just wiped out a major part of the property, you see. And we've been cleaning up ever since, you see. So, but here I am teaching, because I, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. 
intimacy, and no second thought about it, if you will. That's the kind of decisiveness, doing the things that matter, you see, making decisions about what really matters. When Mark Nepo talks about it, you know, again in his writing that I shared with you tonight, he said it takes a little bird chirping outside the window and the sun breaking through the clouds for him as a cancer survivor to realize, here I go again, losing my opportunity to live life and to live it fully in what really doesn't matter. You see. So a decisive individual, uh, the transformation or the shift to decisiveness, to living out of the principle of identity, begins with taking inventory. It begins with the declaration that I'm going to live this way, period. When people ask you why, no reason. I've just declared it. No reason. When people ask me, why do you, why do you sit every day? Because I sit every day. That's why. <laughs> You're saying? And that's another thing you need to understand. If, if you do anything because of a reason, that is not decisiveness. Once again, your decision to do that is being driven by the expectation or belief of the outcome that you will get, the reward. Remember, you know, it was Christ's mandate. We had no choice. Had nothing to do with, you know, getting some kind of reward for them. Christ said, forgive, we must go forgive, period. My doctors say I must eat better and lose weight. I eat better and lose weight. Love dictates that I treat my daughter with patience and compassion and understanding and love and kindness and all of that, and that's how I treat my daughter. That's how I handle my daughter, even when I want to strangle her, you see. That's how I handle her, even when I want to strangle her, and I've got just reason to strangle her. See, this righteous indignation often just harms. There's no such thing as righteous indignation for the bodhisattva. There's the way for the bodhisattva. And the way is clear for the bodhisattva. Loving kindness and compassion, forgiveness, patience, and so forth. So again, we need to take inventory. So one of the things that mostly, that happens mostly to, that happens usually mostly, let me get that right, it happens usually to people mostly is when they have a heart attack or they find out they have cancer, they do this, okay? But I'm suggesting tonight we do that before that happens, and if you do that before it happens, chances are it won't happen, you see? And that is to take inventory of your life and begin to remove everything that's not necessary. All of the things that you think you have to do in the course of the day. The truth of the matter is, there are enough hours in the day. There may not be enough hours in your day, because your day may be filled with too much unnecessary stuff. But there are enough hours every day. We don't make time, we, we don't see if we have enough time to meditate. We make time to meditate. And that may mean removing something that really isn't going to, you know, one of the questions in the process has to do with, does that attitude or that behavior or that decision get me closer 
to where I want to be. So when you start doing inventory with your life and start deciding what's necessary and what's unnecessary, that's the question. Does this commitment to this activity, to this thing I feel I have to do, get me closer to living my life more fully for myself, for my family, for my spouse, for my children, for life, just for life's sake? Does it? If the answer is not a clear yes, you drop it. You drop it. You need to know that again, when I, you know, you know, this happens to parents all over as I understand it. You know, when I finally became a father, I took inventory real fast. If not for any other reason, for practicality. Because there was no way I was going to raise a kid and all this other stuff. You see, so I had to slim down not only my body but my life, the content of my life, you see. And now I make decisions from what supports and empowers me to be where I want to be in every given moment of every given day of my life, you see. And one of those decisions had to do, back to again hurting others, one of those decisions definitely hurt some people in my life because one of those decisions that I immediately declared to family, friends and everyone else is when my daughter is home with me, don't call me, don't expect me, my time is with her and her only. And that's how I spend it. That's how I spend it. Because, you know, I have a limited amount of time to be with her and I want to make sure that every second counts. And I don't feel bad about that at all, you know. And I'll give you an idea of how strict that is for me. Uh, recently, we got some sad news in my family of an uncle, brother of my father, uh, serious cancer and probably will die soon. And my father's talking about how when that happens, we're all going to go to New Hampshire where he lives, you know, to be there for him and so forth and his family. And I said to him, I will be there if it's not a day that Katie's with me. And he knew to just accept that. And you need to know I love this uncle dearly. He's always been a good man to me. And I feel terrible about what's going on, but that's it. You know, that's it. That's the way it works. So, again, you need to become clear. Clarity about who you are is clarity about what matters, what really matters. And then slimming down the content of your life to support what really matters. And in that process, you're going to certainly disappoint someone. You can't, especially after you've spent most of your life trying to please them, you say. And you know that your effort to please others has robbed you of any time, many times, for what you need. You know that. You know that. Even our charity can become, unless we really examine it, even our, you know, there, there are people I know that do everything. They do everything. I mean, you, you ask them what they're doing the course of their day, they do everything. They're at the soup kitchen, they're over here, they're there, they're going to soccer, they're going here, and so forth. And, you know, when they have t uh, trusted me and gone through the process that I'm trying to describe tonight, much uh, of what they discovered truly surprised them, including that their charitable life, their service in the world, 
was really a function of this being driven by the idea they had to, you see. It wasn't truly a free choice on their part. So, you know, this is why, for example, you need to know that, you know, if you take a look at our calendar, and this has been going on since 1975, you take a look at our calendar, there's a week each month we shut down. We call that Sacred Space Week. That's the title I gave to that week. And during Sacred Space Week, I rely on technology, and that is caller ID. You see? And you do know, maybe it's you, I don't know, certainly not going to suggest it, but sometimes I will not answer the phone. You see? Or I get calls, you know, can I come over? No, next week. Next week. Because I know me enough to know that if I don't step out for a period of time, I can't be in where I need to be when I need to be. So retreating, renewing, refreshing is all part of it. Is all part of it. So we begin to reconstruct our life to be able to do just that. To restore, you know, one of the most powerful tools of healing that the body uses is rest. In fact, science talks about how that is the time period where it does most of its better work, when we are in rest. When we, you know, we get sick, what do they tell you? Go to bed. Rest. Rest. There's a reason for that. And if we are spending a life where we are constantly going, 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 and going, and going, and then wondered why we are feeling the way we are, why we feel we don't have enough energy, why we are constantly getting colds or having this problem. You know, we're going to take a look at this in October on the weekend retreat up in Menham. You know, about dis-ease of the mind creates dis-ease in the body. I say, dis-ease of the mind creates disease in the body. So when the mind is diseased, it translates that to the body in a way that we get regularly sick, we get tired, we get and so forth. You know, even I admit that the heart attacks were caused by much stress I was going through at that time and not my proper management of it, and also my eating a lot of Oreos to get through the stress. So, so we begin to take inventory of our life. We start there. We have made the declaration We've made the declaration that true freedom is a function of being decisive. And decisiveness is a function of integrity. Integrity is a strict adherence to a particular way of being. And that particular way of being we've identified tonight is what I call the principle of identity. Now, if you're still not convinced, hopefully this will convince you. There is no doubt in my mind, and science will prove this for me, especially in the, in the domain of parenting. I often tell people the single most powerful tool you have in raising your children, you have in contributing as much as you possibly can to their own well-being and happiness, the single most powerful tool you have is your well-being and happiness. When a child sees the parent happy, when the child sees the parent vibrant and vital, 
that alone is that's 99% I think of the task you see because children I mean my child definitely my daughter definitely looks to me for everything you know she Im imitates me on everything everything I say everything I do and she looks to me before she you know sometimes even moves and sometimes she'll say to me and I don't even realize her she'll say to me daddy why are you sad I'm, like, I'm not sad she said your face looks sad <laughs> why are you sad you see the most powerful tool we have in raising our children the most powerful tool we have in changing the world is bringing ourself to life whether it's in the workplace at home in social uh, events wherever we are tonight here is bringing who we truly are to that space we occupy that's the most powerful tool we have to change ourselves change you know life for our loved ones and to change the world and we'll take a little more look at that in a moment when we come back from the break like clouds moving in water problems make me forget I am clear water reflects everything it encounters this is so commonplace that we think water is blue when in fact it has no color Amazingly, while soft and flowing, water as ocean or lake or even as the smallest puddle of rain takes on the image of the entire world without ever losing its essential clearness. Of course, it is not so easy for us. As sensual and emotional beings, we are constantly losing ourselves in the image of everything we experience. But nonetheless, the nature of water can help us understand our very human struggles. I began, like so many of us, in a household where it was somehow my job to be the lightning rod for the family's tensions of unexpressed emotion. In this way, I learned to be a problem solver a rescuer, a caretaker. Through two marriages and countless friendships, I loved by taking on the clouded emotions of those I loved. The tension of other people's unexpressed emotions kept me from feeling my own depth and clarity. My life became one of turbulence, always struggling to keep my head above the cloudy surface. But the water, the glorious water everywhere, has taught me that we are more than what we reflect or love. This is the work of compassion, to embrace everything clearly without first <coughs> imposing who we are and second, without losing who we are. It is, to be sure, an endless and impossible task but though we can never be as clear as water, it helps to remember that while the very real problems we face are the living things we must handle, they are not the essential current of our lives. Beneath the clouds, water desires only to flow, and beneath our tensions and problems, the human spirit wants only to embrace and soften. And so the reading again but from Mark Nepo, 
points to what one of my friends here tonight shared with me to consider during the break, and that is the tool of balance. The balance in the decisive life uh, provides for us, again, the space we need to continually learn and grow. And the word he used in sharing with me was rigidity. And when I heard him use the term rigidity, I thought of Lao Tzu's saying about the tree that bends and the wind survives where the rigid one breaks. And so when we talk about living decisively, we talk about living with clarity, or a word that I prefer in place of clarity is wisdom. We talk, and wisdom is the ability to see the larger picture when dealing with an a individual frame that makes up that picture. That's the difference between a great movie maker and someone that should go back to school and learn how to make movies. You see, as Spielberg, for example, as compared to, well, pick one, whoever works for you, and so forth. So wisdom or clarity or you know, not being so rigid in life allows for us to see the whole space we occupy rather than this kind of, you know, limited view, this kind of tunnel vision in life. And when we take a look at the whole space, as the Buddha taught, we are always dealing with what is called in Zen, big mind and little mind, or what the Buddha called you know, ultimate reality and temporal reality. That is, the reality of impermanency, which is always going on here, and the reality that life, you know, is much bigger than the problems we tend to encounter and the schedule we intend to try to fulfill. There's much more going on in life. In a more practical uh, understanding of this, it's the difference between seeing your child's need to be hugged and, and told I love you while you're heading out to work late and just going to work. That's the difference, you see. Realizing that there's a bigger picture here. The child's need is part of that larger picture. So again, the word balance for me represents this type of clarity. To have balance in my life, to live a decisive life is like Nepo says, what we are always trying to do when we are living a decisive life is to always remember that we do not want to impose our decisiveness on life, but at the same time, we do not want to lose our identity or ourselves in trying to keep that balance, you see. So this is where, again, at least in the spiritual life, the essential an absolute requirement to step out in order to be in life is necessary. To step out and reflect, to step out. You know, uh, an example I can give you happened just the other day. A dear friend of mine who always calls me when she needs some support, and I call her when I need support. You know, she called me, you know, about I'm still working with the same stuff I've been working with all these years, and you know, she was describing the difficulty she was found herself in right now and all. And then later that night, she texted me that she had gone out to Barnes and Nobles to try to, you know, step out of 
that for a little while and I and I my text to her was take a break tonight from working on your stuff take a break tonight from working on your stuff and uh, in Buddhism you know there is in Zen particularly in ancient Zen stories there are the stories of Zen Roshis who were strict masters with their students and with themselves during a training period but when you know what I call sacred space week for example came around were known to dance naked in the streets you see and to drink a little more sake than usual if you will you see so balance is part of the decisive life and I don't mean to have mistakenly misled you before the break to think that decisiveness equals rigidity it does not balance is the part but there are going to be times when you know we are unable to find that center unable to find that balance and that is where again the bodhisattva knows only one way and in this case what the bodhisattva knows is that when I am unable to find the balance and that lack of balance or rigidity causes harm either to myself or to others then the decisive next step is to clean up my mess to clean up my mess to own that and maybe to go back to the party or to go back to my again uh, adherence to my schedule of meditation to just renew that just like we in training people in in meditation uh, you know particularly when you know on Tuesday nights here for example I do a real strict training of mindfulness meditation and one of the things I tell the group here just as I've told my students over the years is that the aim and objective is to keep the mind here to stay but that is not always going to happen and when that does happen you just notice that the mind has wandered off and start again and that's what I mean by cleaning up one's mess to just notice that my rigidity in that moment may have you know caused some harm either to myself and to others and then I go and I clean up my mess and come back to my integrity come back to again that decisive way of living that is what balance means to me the other uh, question that came up has to do with something I talked about earlier and again one of my uh, students and soon to be ordained monk pointed out to me that I may need to make some I may to be much may need to be much clearer about this also and one of the things I tell my students over the years at the monastery is that selfishness and in, in using the word selfishness means tonight having a reason for doing something I tell my students selfishness got you here but it will not keep you here I say so all of us including listening to what I am instructing tonight and, and applying it to your life when you leave here we do that because we have a reason to do that we, we want to do that because we think it will improve our experience of life or we think it will help us be more peaceful and more flexible and those are very good reasons to be doing it but again one of the what, what you need to remember is especially in meditating especially in training the mind if your reason for becoming a Zen student was to be more peaceful you need to know that the process to getting there will not be okay will not be 
all right? So when we are obsessed with our reasons for doing things, and again, have that rigidity, this is why I want to do it, and if this doesn't show up, I'm out of here. That's usually the result of, again, being rigid with our reasons for doing anything. So uh, impermanency flows through everything. And by that I mean the very reason why I began my own spiritual journey, you know, some 38, 40 years ago, is not the reason why I'm here tonight. And it is not the reason why I've stayed a monk, and it is not the reason I've continued the Zen Society. So if it were, uh, I would have uh, called Rhonda and told her to put a sign outside, I'm too tired, I won't be there tonight. <laughs> you see, because not only did I have to deal with the tornado, but my daughter's home, you see, and so forth. So, it, so again, reasons for doing things which is for me synonymous to selfishness where we have you know, this, I want this to happen for me and that's why I'm going to do it, gets you where you need to be. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Just like whether you want to admit it or not, it's that physical attraction that you have to that other person that gets you to fall in love, let's see. But if after you've fallen in love and commit to having a lifetime relationship, if that's the only reason you stick to, you're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> See? Because bodies are impermanent, okay? And how they look is impermanent, and so forth. So it's, again, reasons or selfishness that gets us on the path we need to be. But once we're on that path, we can no longer rely on them to keep us on the path. You see? Because the mystery, the paradox of truth is that it lures us with beauty and good incense and then once it has us it says it's time to wake up life is suffering you see and if you don't believe it we're going to prove it to you <laughs> see, like that so balance is necessary is the balance always achievable not when the balance is not achievable just notice that and clean up the mess and start again you see Decisive living is to live your life true to yourself while not imposing your truth on others or on life, if you will. While at the same time, in an effort to not impose, in an effort, for example, in relationship, there is always the need, the essential need, to be open to the other person's vision for themselves and for the relationship. So the balance there that's required is, again, the ability to be who you truly are in the relationship because what we so easily forget when our life is about you know, trying to please others, what we so easily forget it was who we are that they were initially attracted to. That's what was the initial attraction. And um, so you know, when we lose ourself in an effort to always please the other party as an act of survival, you know, we keep them around, we think we will, we find out that all the pleasing doesn't, first of all, necessarily mean they stay, and we lose ourselves in the process, so when they go, they're gone and we're gone. And now we're in a lot of trouble, you see. So there is always the need to be open and to be aware of other while at the same time not losing sight 
of yourself. And then you need to work that out for yourself where that balance is, where that middle is. And then decisiveness is always operating from there. Always operating from there. And wisdom is the ability to notice quite quickly when you're operating too far to the right or too far to the left. One of the greatest examples for me of what I mean by wisdom is a very well-known story of Solomon and King Solomon and the baby uh, that the two women claim to be their child. And if you don't know the story, the story again goes where you know Solomon is on decision-making day for the people of, of Israel and these two women come before him swearing that this very beautiful little baby uh, belongs to both of them. And there's no record of which one's really the mother and which one isn't and so forth. And this back and forth goes on and on for a while. And Solomon calls the room to silence and he makes his decision by instructing the soldier, you know, the guard to draw his sword and cut the baby in half and we'll, you both get half. And as the soldier begins to draw his sword, one of the women throws herself onto the baby and protects the baby from what she thought would be you know, imminent death. And Solomon said, well, you are apparently the mother. I say. He discovered the truth by getting to the heart, by speaking to the heart. And when we talk about the heart, the Japanese have a word, kokoro. When we, when we get to the heart within, the heart of the matter, we are talking about one's true nature, one's true self. Solomon knew that no mother would ever allow their baby to uh, be cut in half, if you will. And so he knew that one of them would have, would have jumped on the baby. Somehow he knew that, and thank God he did. And uh, the baby and mommy went home, as I know, doing well. And the other woman is still trying to find a baby. <laughs> That's what happens. So we are always dealing with you know, this ultimate reality. And I want to talk a little more about the ultimate reality in the context of tonight's topic. And that is, when we talk about ultimate reality in Zen, we talk about the, again, essential requirement to remaining true to oneself, not only as a skillful means to live life, but as a uh, real insight into the meaning of life and the purpose of life. So the example that I've often used over the years to teach this has to do with Darwin's theory of evolution. And if you know anything about his theory of evolution, Darwin indicates that the way life forms evolve on the planet is that nature creates what's necessary next in the evolutionary process for that particular species to continue to evolve, to continue to survive. And often I use Darwin's theory of evolution to explain it from a very spiritual place. <clears throat> and by that I mean, for me, um, the creation of life is a spiritual issue. And I say it is, not because I'm a spiritual person, but because that mystery still is unknown. And when it's mystery, it's spiritual, if you will. True spirituality is the acknowledgement that it's mystery, that all everything's a mystery. So if you want to find 
true spirituality, you need to look for the mystery in it. And if there's no mystery in it, you need to be very questionable about it. So for me, mystery has been the driving force. It was my original reason uh, to set off on this path. And uh, so when we take a look at Darwin's theory and apply it to understanding the meaning of life, often I teach it this way, and I've said it this way, and this is what I mean by remaining true to your true nature is absolutely essential because the moment of your birth, as Darwin indicates, the moment of your birth, nature created you to be here at that specific hour, that specific moment, that specific time in natural history for the betterment of the rest of the world. Because Darwin's theory indicates that nature creates what is needed. I say to you, when you were born, you were born because you, the you that was born, is needed for the rest of the world. And when people ask me, as someone did the other day in a long discussion we were having, um, you know, they asked me, you know, so what do you think? Why do you think there is suffering in life with all the problems and everything? And I often reply the same as I always have: we have millions and millions of people living lives they would prefer not to live, being persons they would prefer not to be, and dissatisfied because they haven't a clue as to who they are. Therefore, if we're going to change the problems of the world, we need to create a conducive environment for people to awaken to who they truly are and a culture whereby they are expressing that person, that being, in everything they're doing, including the workplace, if you will. That's why a lot of you know, uh, teachers will tell you, if you want a successful career, do what you love. Do what you love. And the most important person in any organization is the person who is there because they want to be, you see, not because they have to be. You will find that they will produce more than anyone else, and they are ready to be more creative, more open mind, and think out of the box and everything else. So being true to yourself, living a life of clear decisiveness, again, is absolutely essential, not only for you, but for the rest of the world. But always remembering that, again, from the Zen Buddhist perspective, we are all, at all times, complete, and at the same time, becoming. That is, this is only a frame in the big picture. This is only this piece in the big picture. So this is where, again, the flexibility comes in. Flexibility is necessary because you know, when I take a look at my own life's experience over the years, the number of times that I have dropped one paradigm for a new one uh, has been quite regular. You know, and that is why I often say to people who, you know, say to me, are you now, you know, is Buddhism it for you? And I say to them, as long as it works for me. You know, the moment it doesn't, maybe I'll become a Mormon, I don't know. <laughs> or nothing, you say, and so forth. So that's how, that's how the flexibility functions in my life. Whatever, and you know, when people ask me again how I came from Catholicism to Buddhism, I found that Zen Buddhism in particular was a uh, viable uh, vehicle for me to express myself. 
where I could not really find that in the past. So that's why I'm riding this raft to the other shore. Any questions? Motion to ask questions. Um, you were talking about finding a purpose in life. I don't know if I'm way off course in my spiritual life because I really don't care about the purpose of life anymore. Like you mentioned earlier, I am here and I was a student because I read Buddha say at Deer Park, life is suffering. From that moment on, I decided to start reading Buddha's words. And I also read the story about Buddha was asked about God or the afterlife or what life means. And he said, if a man is shot by an arrow, that story. Right. And I've taken that to heart. I really don't care. I'm just here to try to mitigate the suffering and be the best parent I can and be the best person I can for other people. I do, I have a lot of charities that I give to and not because I have to, I really enjoy seeing the fruits of what I, I do. I really don't care about purpose of life. I don't know if I'm way off base or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that your problem uh, has to do with semantics, okay? And the Zen masters have for centuries said that's the biggest problem, semantics. Uh, when we talk about, you know, when I, when I talk about, when I first introduced the topic of purpose in life, again, uh, most people hear that as, you know, having, um, there's all these different purposes in life, you know. You know, this one's purpose is this, that one's purpose is that. But the truth of the matter is, as I listened to you talk, you were talking about the purpose of life. And the purpose of life is to commit oneself to making life less suffering for yourself and for others. So for someone who's not interested in the purpose of life, what I hear, again, the semantic issue for me is what I hear is, you're not interested in discovering it, you're interested in living it. And that's why Zen Buddhism was attractive to me. Why Buddhism in whole? Because as I tell people, uh, there are no dogmas and doctrines to believe in order to be a Buddhist. You are a Buddhist when you live as a Buddhist. Whether you're Catholic or Jewish, doesn't matter. But when you are living from a place of loving kindness and compassion with the desire to you know, end suffering for yourself and others, that's what we call Buddhism. So that's the purpose of life. And that is the purpose of life. It's the purpose of your life. It's the purpose of my life. I may be doing it differently than you do it, but we all have the same purpose. And getting back to my uh, example of Darwin's theory. Remember, Darwin says nature creates what is necessary for the forest. What is the next species necessary to perpetuate the forest, to bring about further evolution? So again, our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others, past and present, I say. And every criminal act and every act of kindness births our future, So again, when we function, you know, as if our lives exist apart, the Buddha said that's the cause of suffering. It's not only the cause of my suffering, it's the cause of the world's suffering. When I live as if I exist apart from everything else, and life was made for me, and so forth, and to pursue my stuff, 
at the cost of others, uh, that's the cause of suffering in the world. And it is also the cause of my own suffering because I don't know anyone in the years that I have come into the company of so many different characters from multi-billionaires to the poorest man on the street. I don't know of anyone who lives that way who can say they're absolutely happy or content. So again, that is even a greater indicator that the purpose of life is to recognize we are here bound to others and our job is to bring to the forest what we have. We're the missing link. When people say to me, why is the world the way it is? I say to them, you're the missing link. That's why. That's why. You are the missing link. Everybody likes to quote Gandhi who says, be the change you want the world to be. But nobody likes to do that. <laughs> and to do that is to recognize that you are the power. If you, you know, I like Lily Tomlin's version of it. Lily Tomlin once said, I used to watch the news every night and ask the question, when is someone going to do something about that? And then I realized I was someone. So, then I realized I was someone. So it, the purpose of my life, the purpose of your life, is to live your life as a benefit to the rest of life, and the meaning of life is to be alive. You know, that's my definition of both the meaning and the purpose. The meaning of life is to live life. The fact that you are alive means be alive. <laughs> when you're dead, then the meaning is be dead. You say, but now the meaning is be alive, and the purpose of being alive is to live your life as a benefit to others. And when you when you understand that through and through, and know that for yourself, that's the same as knowing who you truly are. And when you know who you truly are, you are able to live your life decisively. And when you live your life decisively. You become a force in nature rather than a feverish, selfish little clod of amens and grievances complaining that the world is not devoting itself to making me happy, say, which is something I'm beginning to have to teach my four-year-old is not my purpose either. <laughs> yes, you use the term often about cleaning up the mess. Don't you find that at times when you go about cleaning up the mess that you can complicate it and make it even messier? Right, let, me, let me be clear. When I say clean up the mess, I mean clean up my mess, right. the mess I created. Right. Okay. When I own the mess I created, I'm the only one that can clean it up. You can't clean it up for me. My mother can't. God can't. Buddha can't. I'm the only one that can clean it up. And again, yes, I agree with you. It takes wisdom to clean up the mess that you made, okay? And uh, by that again, it takes the ability to see the heart of the matter. You know, first of all, why is this a mess? A lot of people are making messes every single day throughout the world and don't even realize they have. I see, so first I need to recognize my mess, and then I need to go over and clean that up. Not your mess. I can't clean up your mess. I can't clean up the mess in all the world. But I can take care of my part of the forest by keeping it clean. And that, that's a very, again, uh, that's one of the principles of Zen monasteries throughout the world. And you know, when you come to the monastery, uh, work practice has to do with that. You know, uh, when you go to Japan, and if you haven't, you need to go to Japan 
and you visit the Zen monasteries in Japan, they are pristine landscapes. I mean, you, you'll see uh, old Japanese people actually sweeping the lawn, sweeping the grasses. And they are pristine landscapes, pristine, clean inside and out. And the reason for that is that, again, from the Zen Buddhist perspective, this is the Pure Land. And we need to keep it clean. And the Pure Land is the Eastern term for heaven. So this is heaven and we need to take care of it and keep it clean. So again, I can clean up my part of it, but I can't clean up your part of it. You need to do that for yourself. Neither can I tell you how to clean up your mess, because I didn't make it. So I have no clue how to clean it up like that. Is that helpful? Well, speaking of cleaning up your own mess, but in cleaning up your own mess, sometimes you make it more complicated and even messier by the decisions you make in trying to clean up your own mess. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's you know, it's a very complex uh, matter. Yeah, so again, uh, I need to go to the the principal teaching, the prime teaching of the tea ceremony. And when the student studies tea with the master for many, many years, uh, it's not until years later that the master allows the student to prepare the tea room for a tea ceremony. And when that time comes, her or his instruction to the student is, go in and remove everything that is not necessary. And she doesn't tell the student what that is. And the student bounces off the walls for a while until they drop their ego and go and ask the teacher fearfully, I don't know what you mean, what is not necessary? And she says the same thing has been said since Rikyo established the tea ceremony. She says, you're not necessary. So in order to clean up my mess efficiently and in a way that doesn't do that, I need to clean it up without ego. My ego is the only thing that creates more mess. Right. Let's say. So I, I clean up the mess because there's a mess I made to clean up, not for any other reason. Not for any other reason. It's similar to the example you've heard me use over and over again about how to maintain a truly loving family. When the family comes together for dinner and the small child, you know, spills the milk, instead of you know, yelling at the child and explaining to the child how milk costs more than gasoline these days and so forth, you just clean up the milk. Why? Because all that's happened is the milk is spilled. That's all that happened. Anything else you think that's happened there is your ego contribution to it. So, you know, that's what I mean by effective cleaning up involves and is essential that I don't bring my ego to that. I just clean up my mess. So if cleaning up my mess has to do with owning what I did, and for example, in relationships, has to do with apologizing for what I did, I don't apologize trying to explain why I did what I did, okay? I apologize, okay? And I own my behavior. I don't say, for example, well, you know, if you didn't say this, <laughs> that's where we make it messier and more complicated. Right. Say, it's real simple. My words hurt you, and I'm truly sorry. Period. End of story. You 
and I will do my best to not do that again. But there are no guarantees. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? Well, I mean to be very decisive about this. It has truly been a privilege and a pleasure to be with you tonight. Thank you for making the time to come here and not go to the beach, <laughs> which everywhere everybody else must be, and so forth. So thank you very much. Before you go, if you haven't gotten it already, uh, there's a flyer outside about our annual fall retreat in October. Uh, this year it's going to be in Menham, New Jersey, on 74 acres of pristine uh, land, kept pristine and beautiful by an order of nuns that live there, uh, Episcopal order of nuns that live there. It's a very beautiful campus, uh, and fall is the best time to be there with the foliage. And information, more information about the retreat can be found on our website, including the schedule and, or the itinerary. If you want to know more, there are limited spaces. They are single rooms uh, available. That's why there are limited spaces. And they're going, going, don't register after they're gone. Register. Register. Just do it. Don't think about it. Don't have a choice. Just go to the retreat in October. Thank you for the privilege of being here. Good night. Good night. Good night.